Hello and welcome to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I am your host, Adam Conover. Now, if you don't know what the podcast is, say you just tapped on it because it was alphabetically first in your podcast directory. And you're saying, what is this thing? I've started listening to it even though I have no earthly clue what it is. Well, I host a TV show on True TV called Adam Ruins Everything. It's an educational comedy show where I blow your mind with crazy facts. Uh, and on the show, I talk to experts from around the world of human knowledge just for a couple minutes and we get the their point of view on whatever the topic of the day is. But here's the thing. They have so much more to say. I am always, when they leave set, filled with questions and curiosity about the field that they study or the perspective that they represent or the world that they come from. This podcast is where we get to talk to them for a longer period of time, and I get to ask those burning questions and share the answers with you fine people at home. And that's what we're going to do today with my guest, Ed Ayers. But before I tell you who he is and what he's here to talk about, I would like to remind you that the TV show Adam Ruins Everything is coming back on August 23rd, Tuesday nights on True TV. And you can find clips and full episodes at truetv.com slash Adam Ruins Everything and the Watch True TV app. We've got 14 big episodes coming at you and you're going to love them, I guarantee. And I'm also going on tour this fall and you can find all of my tour dates at adamconover.net, not .com. .net, please, slash, there is no slash, it's just adamconover.net, you'll see a list of cities that I'm going to, and if your city is one of them, I invite you to come out and uh, see me do some comedy for you. We're doing a big election-themed show, I'm going to be doing an hour of brand new comedy information, never-before-seen material on our election system, it's history, it's peccadillos, it's quirks, I guarantee you will be enlightened and uh, delighted by it. Uh, So I hope you come check that out, Uh, but now... Back to the podcast, which is honestly, that's what you tapped on, so that's what you want to hear. Uh, Today's guest is Ed Ayers. Ed is a historian who appeared on the voting episode of the Adam Ruins Everything TV show. He is also one of the hosts of the public radio show and podcast Backstory with the American History Guys, which looks at current events in America through a historical lens. Guys, if you haven't heard this podcast, it's one of my favorites. It's an hour every week that covers incredible history stories, uh, things you never knew happened in our nation's history. It's really a blast. Ed also happens to be the president of the Organization of American Historians and was formerly professor of history at the University of Virginia. But he's also just a really smart guy who knows a lot of cool things about history and is going to be a lot of fun to talk to. So I hope you enjoy the interview. And Ed is joining us remotely from Virginia through the magic of technology. Let's take it away. Hey, Ed, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me today. My pleasure, Adam. And thanks for thanks for being on the show last year and and helping you know giving us so much more historical context for the story that we were telling. Was what was it like uh, you know traveling back in time on our sort of airsats uh, uh, set? I was amazed, in all honesty, how hard it is to produce a twenty one minute comedy show. God, <laughs> you guys work hard. It was uh, you know I was there for two days and I was entranced the whole time. So uh, the the time travel was fun, but also uh, getting a, a chance to see behind the scenes of television. It was magic. Yo, oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I mean, I always tell people it's it's much less glamorous than I think they expect. It's a lot of being told to sh- shift left and shift right, and <laughs> and uh, it's always very it's always very like hot and sweaty, and and uh, <laughs> y- you know it's, it sort of seems to lack a little bit of Hollywood glitz and glamour. But uh, but that's that's for me doing it every day. So I'm always interested to see how it how it looks to an outsider. 
It's fascinating, and you know, and to see how the pieces come together. And oh, that's what he was doing in the body-colored suit that he exploded. That that looks cool. <laughs> you know, oh God! Some... Yeah, yeah, you saw me in. Uh, I believe there was a scene where I had to wear a dance belt, which is a flesh-colored sort of thong underwear, in order to do the scene where I arrive naked. And I think that was the day that I met you, which was pretty embarrassing. <laughs> Well, no, I, I, you really carried it off. So uh, it was cool to see what it looked like with special effects. Made me wish I had special effects all the time. Uh, I, and I often thought that if I just had people write my lines, and as I do on our radio show, had a chance to do things several times, my, I would be so much more impressive. But unfortunately, you get one shot at life, unlike <laughs> entertainment. <laughs> well, I was so happy that you were there to to help you know, help us understand, you know, the history, because we in that episode really tried to tell a long, you know, sort of narrative about the history of our democracy in a very short period of time, which uh, there's so much to parse through. But what really struck me was how different our, you know, founding fathers, like a conception of democracy was from ours today. You know, we have this idea today that, you know, well, uh, all men are created equal means, you know, every citizen should have one vote. And, you know, that should be sort of a direct uh, correspondence between, you know, each citizen, you know, like the majority chooses the uh, sort of representatives directly. uh, But that turns out to be very at odds with what the people actually founded the the nation uh, thought it should be. Yeah, it's a paradox because uh, it was, uh, to coin a phrase, revolutionary at the time. I mean, and in the direction of democracy and, you know, I mean, killing the king, um, figuratively, it was a pretty big deal. And uh, so the, the trick is not to trivialize what they actually accomplished, but not to romanticize the legacy they left us. And I thought your show did a great job of sort of uh, navigating that line. So you know, the Declaration of Independence is the seed that grew into the democracy that we imagine today. Uh, the Constitution they left us has had to be amended several times, uh, more often about uh, voting uh, and what citizenship means more profoundly than any other subject. So this is sort of the the big pivot in American history. If they hadn't started us toward democracy, uh, we wouldn't be where we are today. On the other hand, they didn't get us very far down the road compared to what we want today. Yeah, that's that's so fascinating because, you know, I think there's an urge to say to think of the country that we have today as being directly founded by those men. Right. That they got together and they, you know, 200 odd years ago, you know, set set up the system that we have now and that it hasn't changed. But and I'm paraphrasing now based on a conversation that we had, you know, uh, nearly a year ago. So so please correct me. But my memory is that uh, you almost phrased it that the the men who founded the country were sort of these uh, aristocratic fellows who were, you know, they had a lot of, you know, enlightenment ideals about, uh, you know, the people, uh, you know, having uh, control over their own fate and ruling themselves. But they were simultaneously worried about sort of the rabble, (laughs) you know, taking their land or taking their their wealth. Is that correct? Well, they were worried about people taking them literally, which, of course, is what we've ended up doing. Mm-hmm. You know, all men are created equal. So they knew they were taking the, the top off Pandora's box. I mean, one reason they were nervous, I mean, nobody made them do this. This is their own doing to, to create a more democratic nation. They just did not know how far democracy would run. And that's one reason, you know, we always celebrate checks and balances in our, in our civics classes. But they're putting checks and balances on a machine that they're the ones who've created 
been set, set loose. And, you know, I think that uh, on one hand, uh, we are fulfilling the vision that they had of a democratic nation. On the other hand, they literally could not have imagined, first of all, women voting, of course. And, of course, they could not really have imagined slavery coming to an end as it did. And then full citizenship and immigration. So I think that the impulse behind it remains constant. But and I don't even know that they would be dismayed uh, to see how it's turned out. They would just be amazed yeah. <laughs> that, that the country has evolved this way in 225 years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what one of the ways that you put it that I really loved was that, especially, for instance, talking about you know them, them being slave owners or you know the the limits that they you know placed on democracy in their own time was that they. Their reach almost exceeded their grasp in terms of how much democracy they wanted to create. Like they, you know, sort of had these ideals of all men are created equal, but they also had a little bit of real world fear or, you know, restrictions that stopped them from actually extending the franchise that far. You're just talking about voting rights. But the ideals still meant that they put the tools in place that allowed us to expand those rights. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, what they really meant, all people's are created equal. Uh, they didn't really mean uh, all people. <laughs> uh, so what they meant is that the American, na- the American colonies uh, had the right to be of equal to the founding uh, nation of England. Huh. And so, yeah, so th- they, that's the reason we keep thinking, well, that, why'd they say men? Well, they were, of course, you know, by our standards, sexist and racist and every other category. But they were also... Uh, children of the Enlightenment who did believe that there were intrinsic rights. Now, one problem with all this is that Thomas Jefferson, for example, believed that uh, enslaved people had the right to rebel, <laughs> that they were they were mm. captives of war, uh, and that they were, and one reason that people know these, this famous line, we have the wolf by the ears and we're afraid to let him go or to hold on, that's because he, he said if all peoples are created equal, then the captive nation of African Americans had the right to rebellion. So they are limited in the ways that we are used to thinking about, but it's also that they, in some ways... Um, that they imagine more of a tabula rasa than we do. You know, we we begin with identity, of our of our gender, our race, our uh, you know religious belief or whatever, and kind of that's who we are and work out. Mm-hmm. They begin with the idea of okay, here's the people, and equality flows from that. You know, they never would have questioned the idea that of course, civil society is built around men who own property and have responsibility for their households, including servants and enslaved people. That, they, that just would not have been a question. That was, right. in fact, the way the society was built. Right. But on the other hand, you know, uh, they did imagine that slavery would fade away, is what they thought would happen at the time in the late 18th century, uh, that the normal workings of the great uh, watch, the great clock that was um, normal laws of the universe uh, would tend toward democracy. So it's a fine line, you know. It's always the case that, you know, especially in schools, we romanticize the so-called founding fathers. And then, of course, then we become, you know, middle schoolers and we tear them down into complete <laughs> hypocrites, right? Uh, yes. And, and that's why, the, you know, the, the, the play Hamilton is so fascinating. That's really kind of exploded since uh, we were on, the, on your show together. Yes. Uh, and to see the way that it has kind of... Uh, taken that and turned it on its head in terms of, you know, ethnic identity. But it's also said, 
wait, you know, it really matters the things that they argued about, <laughs> you know, how strong the federal government was compared to the states and what the economic policy was. I mean, that's really one of the the great hip hop moments, <laughs> the debate between <laughs> Hamilton and Jefferson about, you know, economic policy. But, you know, those things did matter. And so the, the trick is to remain skeptical, but not cynical about all this. And that's that's always the thing in American history. Right. That's really fascinating. It, it, it almost seems as though uh, when I think about the arc of American history that uh, it's less that they sort of created the country, you know, with perfect enlightenment ideas. But it was more the fact that the, you know, structure of the government and the political so- society was capable of revision at all, that it was a, a government that was at least somewhat accountable to the people and which had processes, you know, within it that could allow it to amend and change and reflect itself uh, or, you know, change itself in different ways. And then so simultaneously, as American culture began to value, you know, liberty or equality and those and those values more, we were able to fold those into the structure of the government in a way over over time. That's just me spitballing (laughs) a couple hundred years of history off the top of my head. I wonder how that strikes you. Well, that's it strikes me as very un-Adam-esque, uh, frankly. Uh, you know, you've taught me to be skeptical of everything, you know, ah. from wipes on down. And so, I, you know, I, I'm skeptical of that. No, I mean, let me turn that a different way. Please. Yeah. As long as you have a war that kills the equivalent of 8 million people today, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a system of, of infinite flexibility. And they had not changed the Constitution in any way that expanded rights uh, until the Civil War destroyed slavery in the 13th Amendment and then mm. added citizenship in the 14th Amendment and then removed voting restrictions in the 15th Amendment. So, you know, that is two ways of looking at that, or more, many more than two, fortunately, or it keeps people like me in business. But uh, the, the fact that the problem that they had built in of slavery at the same time that they talk about all people being equal help generate the war in the first place. Right, right. Uh, that's a very good point. Yeah, the civil, the fact that it took a war to uh, create those rights is definitely a counterpoint to the picture I just drew. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, but on the other hand, the fact that those rights emerged so quickly out of a war that n- did not begin to end slavery. I mean, the war begins to hold the United States together. And out of that process, and uh, uh, here's what I would say, Adam. Uh, if I'm giving you a grade, I'm going to give you extra credit because what you were saying on this <laughs> was it's true because in the space of the war, of the Civil War, those rights assert themselves so rapidly and strongly. There's no other place in the Western Hemisphere of modern slavery in which the people who had been held in slavery become voting citizens within a decade. Mm-hmm. So there's different, you know, it's, it's the, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that the profound tension, problem, unsolved uh, paradox at the heart of American history is a democratic nation that is also the largest slaveholding nation in the modern world. And, and we're still, you know, working through all of that. I mean, m- most of the problems that have come, including you know, recent rulings of uh, appeals courts about voting ID and all that, it's still a rolling out of the consequence of that tension. It is the most democratic nation in the world. It is also the largest slaveholding nation in the world. It's that those polarities are what still uh, sort of Right. Pull so hard at the American nation. And could you describe, uh, just to uh, return to something that you just touched yep. on, the way that the seeds for the Civil War were planted when the nation was was founded? Uh, could you expand on that? 
Yeah, I mean, it is the Declaration of Independence. Uh, the people who are opposed to slavery, you know, William Lloyd Garrison, you know, talks about burning the Constitution because it's a pact with the devil, It hmm. because it acknowledges the three-fifths clause. You know, kind of what we did on your show, the fact that the deal is, okay, you in the South who have slaves get to count them as three-fifths of a person for a vote. Uh, that's a, you know, a fundamental compromise built into the nation that allows the nation to be built. I mean, that's the the, the, the problem. We don't, you don't have a United States if you don't make a deal about slavery. Right. Um, and that, and okay. that deal afforded the, the slaveholding, that deal, which was made through the Electoral College, afforded the slaveholding states more political power, correct? Yeah, they ran the country until the time of the Civil War, until the North grew so disproportionately that they said, no, you are not going to control the nation anymore. Lead us into war with Mexico. Now you're talking about, you know, taking over Central America, taking Cuba. You know, you're talking about expanding slavery into the whole western half of the United States. No, we're not going to do that. I know that the Constitution gives you these rights with the slaves that you have now, but we don't think that it is uh, congruent with the ideals of the American nation to expand slavery indefinitely. And uh, so the South says, look, we're the fourth richest economy in the world by ourselves. We don't need you. We produce all of 80 percent of all American exports with slave labor of the nation. Uh, great. We'll make our own country and England and France. Everybody else will kowtow to us and we'll walk away from this. We'll have the same ideals as the United States, but we'll be based on slavery well, that you guys constantly harassing us for you know being uh, betraying the nation. So in many ways, the Civil War comes because both sides are claiming the same legacy of those founding fathers. Huh. You know, as you showed in your dramatization of that, you know, a lot of the founding fathers, of course, are big slaveholders from here in Virginia. And so they say, well, how can you say that we ruined the nation? We created it. And the North says, well, uh, you know, the fact is you cannot destroy the United States. Yeah. So th- that's how it grows in is that, you know, we could I could talk about this really for many hours, but <laughs> it's, a fu- it, it's a fundamental problem when people in the North see that slavery is growing stronger rather than weaker and threatens to sort of take the whole American nation hostage. The founding fathers believed that slavery would fade away and in the Northwest Ordinance uh, did uh, stop its expansion, <laughs> inspired ironically by Thomas Jefferson, uh, in which they said these new states of what we now call the Midwest would not have slavery. And they said, look, it's clear that the founding fathers did not intend for slavery to saturate this whole country, and that's what you in the South are wanting. That's really what the Civil War is about, is what is the future of slavery? And, right. and so so that's how that's how it all comes about. So it's a fundamental, you know, one way to think about this. This is the irritant like an oyster. You know, it's it's planted at the very beginning and it at, it pushes until you get the, the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendment. And then, of course, uh, the the great you know hundred years in which the North says, OK, that's enough. <laughs> black people <laughs> in the South, you're on your own. And then black people have to fight for themselves to have the nation live up to its ideals. So. I think, you know, you really can tell the story of American democracy through the story of African-Americans, of how it begins with slavery um, and then is transformed uh, into a more fully democratic nation and then sort of short circuits for 100 years. And then in the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Movement is finally delivers on what had been promised in the late 18th century. I think that's and then you know the interesting thing is that lots of other people who are not African-American benefit 
from the expansion of this notion of what it means to be a citizen. Of course, the 14th Amendment says if you're born in this country, you're an American. That's the fundamental fulfillment of the founding moment, that everybody in this country is an American. And it took the war and the end of slavery uh, to bring that about. So it moves in jerks. You know, it's not a gradually Mm. unfolding, you know, flower of democracy. It's violent um, surges. And, you know, and we may be seeing something like that today. Right. And it it seems like we're at a moment when the uh, we're starting to doubt the institutions of democracy uh, yeah. more than we have in a long time. Just the, you know, the meme of the system is rigged that's going around this year. Um, yeah. Just to take one example, but then, you know, the fact that Supreme Court seats are, are being left unfilled and uh, these sort of like basic mechanisms are, are breaking down and that there have been recent court decisions that have been rolling, rolling back those Voting Rights Act provisions and, and those sorts of things. Yeah. I mean, the fact that people are announcing on the left and the right that the system is rigged um, is a sign of great alarm. And of course, it has been rigged, (laughs) you know, uh, in in the sense that you guys dealt very effectively with it in the show. You know, we had that scene of disfranchisement of African-American men lining up to vote and being defrauded and intimidated away from it. Uh, What's more of a rigging than that? So, you know, it's it's kind of ironic that and now these recent appeals court uh, cases say these voter ID laws in North Carolina, Wisconsin, are illegal. So that people keep trying to rig it, <laughs> you know, try to right. stop people from voting. And this impulse that the founding fathers had at the beginning keeps reasserting itself. So ironically, at a time when you have a broader array of Americans than ever before voting, we're explicitly skeptical about the system. But what people forget is the system was explicitly so-called legally rigged for yes. 100 years after the Civil War. Yes. I mean, whenever I, you know, read about the, you know, the history of, of our nation's elections or the, or the history of how various presidents got into power, it, it always strikes me that it, the, the system has always been rigged more in the past than it is today. You know? yeah. or the, there are always shocking examples of, you know, incidents that we would now consider incredibly undemocratic, way beyond anything, you know, that's, that's happening today. Uh, do you agree with that assessment or do you think we're do you think in, you know, the way some people think we're slipping backwards? Well, I mean, what's more rigged than saying if you're a woman, you cannot vote. Right. I mean, you know, and then what's more rigged than saying you got to pay poll tax uh, or you've got to risk your life to vote. So one way to think about this is for 50 years, we've had a system in which women and African-Americans can legally vote. Uh, and you've seen a revolution in many American cities and counties where African-American people now are mayors and run things. And we right. take it for granted that women are, you know, in positions of authority. So, you know, pulling the camera way back and looking at it, the things that we're talking about rigging today, like the primary system that leads to delegates for a convention seems very small amount of rigging <laughs> compared to the deprivation <laughs> of the vote for half the population and then for an entire swath of the population uh, who's African-American. So, you know, I think that actually um, the talk about rigging is an uh, example of higher expectations that's going to lead to a more democratic system. You know, I think it's good that people have such high expectations that every vote counts 
especially from some quarters, strikes me as more more adequately uh, expressed than in others, is a good sign. It shows that we take Mm -hmm. it seriously enough to care about it. Yes, it shows that people have, you know, the sort of folk understanding of democracy is is very strong, that people, you know, we've uh, sort of all been taught in school, you know, one person, one vote, you pick the president, you pick the the candidates. And it it almost strikes me that especially with the with the primaries, that it's, uh, you know, the sort of like basic understanding people have of, no, my vote should choose the candidate. This should be direct and clear and transparent when the fact is that the party nomination processes have have never really been, uh, you know, that clear and that democratic um, and that the expectation of the people is bumping up against the reality of the process uh, in a way that sort of speaks to how strong the idea of democracy is for Americans anyway. Yeah. I mean, the process has never been more inclusive than it is today. I mean, that's just a fact. You know, people talk about smoke filled rooms and stuff. Well, now we're talking about, you know, an incredibly long <laughs> primary process in which apparently anybody can run uh, and, <laughs> and, and, and that, you, that people can say whatever they want to say. It's interesting, though, that um, only 9 percent of the American population has chosen uh, Trump and Clinton. Uh, despite all of that. And so a lot of the uh, deprivation of democracy is is self-inflicted, people just not showing up to vote. I think that's going to really be the issue for the convention, for the uh, general election this fall, is what percentage of people are motivated enough to actually vote. And so you, you'll see, in some ways, people are protesting by threatening not to vote. <laughs> and, and so they want to have a, a system that's inclusive, but the main thing that they you know, would do to resist it is not to vote at all. So, yeah, I, I think we're kind of schizophrenic about this, but, but it's, a, it's a good kind of schizophrenia. You know, it's an expectation, a frustration and impatience with anything that hinders what you've described as sort of one person, one vote right now in the way that yes. I want it. That's OK. You know, <laughs> it's built into the process. Well, I'm here talking to Ed Ayers. We'll be back in just a moment, so please stick around. Going into a bullseye interview, I know it's somebody who does amazing work, but it's an actual conversation. I don't know where it's headed. <laughs> hey, these are this is this, this is the straight talk that that you're going to get on this show. Does that make sense? I feel like I'm in therapy. I think you, you I got more out of you than the therapist I went to twice. <laughs> <laughs> Bullseye. Creators you know, creators you need to know. Find it at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm here talking to historian Ed Ayers, who appeared on the voting episode of Adam Ruins Everything. Let me let me pose a uh, sort of a a historical question for you, um, because I've, I've thought a lot about you know, just some broad historical themes here. We talk about how the founding fathers, you know, were were frightened about mob rule, right? And so they wanted yep. a buffer and they created a lot of buffering organizations like the Electoral College. I've also read how the the Senate was sort of designed to be a more aristocratic body that, that wouldn't be directly chosen by the people in order to be a buffer from the people because they were worried that the people would mob together and vote for a demagogue or, yep. or a crazy person, right? Uh, so fast forward to now. 
And uh, it seems like people have a real rejection of any of those buffering qualities. Like they don't want, you know, the, the frustration with superdelegates, right? Superdelegates look to me like a similar sort of buffering body where yep, yep. those are members of the party, people who've put their time in, they've put in their 20, 30 years, and they're sort of part of the political organism. And, and they can, you know, hopefully be a little bit of a buffer so that nothing goes wrong. And then you look at the Republicans who, who don't have superdelegates and uh, it it turns out someone who has has been described as a demagogue did run away with it by sort of, you know, inciting people's passions. Uh, you know, so one might ask and I don't I'm not suggesting personally, but one, you know, I think it's an interesting question to pose. Like, <laughs> was was that impulse correct to a certain degree to have those buffering qualities? Like, is it something that we want to have in democracy or are we better off, you know, like leveling everything so it literally is just, you know, people directly picking the nominees? Well, if you think about the countervailing structures, they are still democratic. I mean, people still vote for the Senate. <laughs> Right. right. And and people are still voting for the delegates to the convention. So and I think one of the things that uh, people are frustrated about right now is that the parties still have power, even though uh, people know that uh, Donald Trump has not always identified as a Republican. And people know that Bernie Sanders has not always identified as a Democrat. Right. And yet the delegates for both are furious when the two parties don't just ad- adopt them, right? So mm-hmm. it, it's it's not only Supreme Court and the Senate. Uh, people don't also don't want any structures of control at all. You know, it, I don't want to trivialize any of this. I, all these strike me as legitimate longings for a true democracy, right? But it, in some ways, it, it's been sort of saturated by modern. Um, you know, social media and technology, where everybody does have more of a voice than we did five years ago, mm-hmm. and and also anybody can write reviews on Amazon, and mm-hmm. everybody, you know, and so it's not hard for me to imagine that in twenty years, a lot of this machinery um, does fall away, and you do have more direct democracy, and the things that people are expecting in their lives of consumption and of expression uh, will become more imaginable in the world of voting. Now, events like of the last few months may give people pause and they may actually say, wait, I see why we have a Supreme Court that reviews decisions of state courts when they are making decisions that seem just outlandishly wrong to me. You know, when when a governor can come in and sort of reorient an entire state or when a, a general assembly falls over to another party and suddenly laws of, you know, of people's most intimate lives are changed overnight, I think that people can uh, see the reason that they're that to have Authority that is not immediately based in the locality or in the people. Now, here's the interesting thing to think about. Would we have the civil rights revolution if you'd only had direct democracy? Hmm. The white South did not ever just say, hey, what were we thinking? Segregation is wrong. If you did not have federal authority coming in and saying you are violating fundamental principles of the nation— with this kind of local democracy, right? Wow, You've got what a white good people. Point. <laughs> so yeah. I th- you know, we, we, we're scrambled. People imagined uh, in different ways that local and small and immediate is more democratic. 
But the story of the civil rights revolution suggests that, no, sometimes remote and larger frames of reference are actually more democratic than what people might create in their own communities. That's such a fascinating point that uh, if, if it had been a purely direct democracy, the uh, yeah racist white Southerners would have been able to they, – they never would have done it by themselves if it hadn't been imposed upon them by – sort of elites telling them what to do, basically. <laughs> yeah, well, and it, even if you'd had a vote in 1861, all white Americans, raise your hand, how many of you want to end slavery immediately with no compensation for the slaveholders and votes for the people who are held in slavery right now? I don't think it would have won. Right. You know, I mean, Abraham Lincoln wins 39.8% of the vote in the North, <laughs> I'm sorry, in the in the whole nation. But oh, then, wow. uh, even in the Civil War, he only wins 55 percent of the vote in 1864. After all these years of of sacrifice and Northern victory brought on the cusp of things, nearly half of white Northern men won't vote for Abraham Lincoln. So that gives you another <laughs> glimpse at if you have unmediated democracy, you don't end up with a more democratic nation. That's so fascinating, yeah. Or that, or you don't end up with a more equal nation. Certainly, um, I guess the sense that you know the sort of meta idea that I'm getting here is that we we do need these organs of government that are you know less democratic in a real sense. That are yeah, Supreme Court justices appointed to lifetime terms, or yeah. you know party leaders who's you know have some you know ability to. Uh, you know, contradict the will of the people to a certain degree. Like there are real instances in which you need that sort of mediating force, but it really is contrary to a deep uh, belief in democracy that Americans have. To there, there's a real tension there. Yeah, I, I would say just saying it's democratic or undemocratic, Adam might not get at it. Mm-hmm. It's immediate, immediate democracy versus sort of what the the founders of the republic called. The Republic, right, Uh, in which there's a a machinery of democracy that things that are undemocratic in the sense of Supreme Court justices appointed for life are there not to resist democracy, but as we've seen in the case of, you know, Brown versus Board of Education to enable democracy because they are not immediately beholden to getting elected the next time. Right. So so they could actually do something that's in the spirit of the founding uh, goals of the nation. uh, without ever having been elected. So, you know, I think what we're always worried about is what sometimes they don't do things, you know, that are Citizens United, for example. A lot of people think, okay, treating that corporations are people and can spend, you know, as much money as they want to to elect who they want to. Well, that's a court decision as well, right, that seems undemocratic. So Mm -hmm. we're just going to have to get used to the idea that we're never going to be comfortable and we've never got it. It's it's just (laughs) built in that it's going to – this is the way democracy looks. It's it's awkward (laughs) and and, and halting and sometimes retrograde and it often feels dangerous. It often feels like – whoa, things are out of control, either veering too far toward unmediated democracy by people who aren't really thinking through what they're voting for, or on the other hand, that we want this good thing and the majority wants it and the darn courts or the senator or whoever just won't let us have it. And, you know, it, it's built in that whatever po- politics we have, 
somebody in the government or somebody in this democratic system is really hitting us the wrong way. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it's interesting in their last two conventions to see how people claim the mantle of who's patriotic. You know, for a long time, the Republicans had a monopoly on that. You know, the the American flag lapel pins and all the, you know, bunting and stuff. This time, the Democrats seized all that. Right. You know, the, the, the parents of the young soldier who was killed and so forth. And so I think if we imagine that there are forces of democracy that are arrayed just on one side or the other, rather than it being a whole language that's up for grabs mm-hmm. all the time by yes. whoever can make you know, the loudest noise. That's just kind of the system we got. What you just said about the conventions is so fascinating because that that really struck me as well that, you know, as someone who sort of grew up, you know, or I came to political consciousness during, you know, the Bush years uh, when, yeah, the Republican Party was the party of of standing up and saluting at a football game, you know, um, and to see the Democrats, you know, start the USA chant um, was such a striking moment to me. And it did, you know, my sense is that, you know, this is an election where you know, we're starting to see the parties sort of change their alignments and change what parts of the electorate they're they're sort of, you know, building into a coalition in a in a real way. Does it feel that way to you? Yeah. I mean, people forget, you know, that the Democrats won World War Two in the sense, you know, FDR saw all the way through. Right. And it was Democrats, on the other hand, who dropped the atomic bomb and dragged us into Vietnam. Right. Right. And, and so I think that people with short memories, younger people such as yourself, perhaps, uh, <laughs> you know, well, it only who, goes back 30 odd years. You know, it, exactly. You know, well, older people like me can remember. Of course, and if you if you live in the past for a living, you, you can see farther back and you realize that these things oscillate. Yes. Uh, is that it certainly did. Did seem over the last thirty years that the Republicans had basically because of, of Reagan had claimed patriotism, uh, but patriotism for good and bad has been <laughs> as much a democratic uh, thing. If we want to think of patriotism as foreign policy, the Democrats have done more to shape American foreign policy in the twentieth century than the Republicans have. And it's kind of interesting that that has become, you know, our, our memories are short. Uh, and we think of, you know, uh, mission accomplished and all that as a Republican thing. But the Democrats talked much the same way when they were in power. Right. We also forget that, you know, uh, we now think of the Democrats as being the party of, of civil rights. But in fact, it was Southern Democrats who were who stopped civil rights for decades and decades. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. And that's a great point, Adam. Thanks for making that point, because, you know, uh, the the New Deal, as revolutionary or as uh, evolutionary as it was, pulled up short on race and you know, on lynching of all things, right. uh, because the Democrats are running that local that local power. So, I think that it's you know one thing that you were fascinated with in the show was the Electoral College. Yes, um, and it, that's an interesting way that a lot of this gets mediated. As well, um, you know, you go back and look at maps of how people voted. Uh, you realize, you know, that the country just makes these massive shifts several times in the 20th century. There's no reason to believe that we're not getting ready to live through another massive shift. 
So, yeah, that that's a question I wanted to ask you. Um, does this – everyone is saying, oh, this you – know, just people I, I talk to on the street. Well, I don't really talk to people on the street. I live in L.A. So <laughs> um, – <laughs> but uh, – you know, everyone says, "Oh, this is this at is the, the juice shop." You probably talk yes. to them. <laughs> yeah, in line for our smoothies at Moon Juice. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, you know, people say, "Oh, this is the craziest election ever." This is this election is so strange and so bizarre. You know, this is people are saying, "Oh, this is you know 1968 all over again," or or whatever that kind of. You know, there's a sense that people have that this is a historically anomalous election cycle and i and i just wonder as someone who knows a lot about a lot of election cycles does it strike you that way it's pretty weird (laughs) 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 you know i'd have to say you know that um and you know the democrats are are kind of following the script um uh, in the sense of, of of uh kind of succession of power within the party, paying your dues and so forth. I do think that we may be seeing something on the Republican side that we've seen before, but it was in the 1850s Hmm. uh, when the Whig Party fell apart and the Republicans arose for the first time. Um, You know, that is the clearest example of of when a party has – and the Whigs were, you know, were – as strong as the Democrats for several decades before the Civil War and then sort of dissolved. I don't think the Republican Party is going away, but it's clearly being sort of reconstituted before our eyes. Um, and it's interesting, too, on, on not just patriotism, but on other kinds of issues, uh, the, the parties seem to be sort of unstable about what they be. You know, Trump is not really saying the things that Romney or McCain said about, you know, foreign uh, exchange or, you know, government spending or entitlements. I mean, we would not have imagined just a year ago that the Republicans would not be talking about those things as their primary purposes because they have defined, even in your lifetime, uh, you know, that's what they've always talked about, right? Uh, They've always, you know, keep government small, keep taxes down, stop this deficit. And suddenly they're not talking about it at all. So I think it's, you know, what will be interesting to see is the extent to which the personality-driven politics that we have right now with Donald Trump, what they do to change the Republican Party itself. You know, whatever happens, let's imagine he does not win. Uh, Will Ryan and the other established leaders say, well, okay, that was a close call. We better incorporate something of what Trump was saying into our new platform. Or do they say, "Uh, that was a a close call. Let's get back to what we really believe in. Uh, So I, I can't think of a time in which the main candidate and the party have been at such odds since the election of 1864 when George McClellan runs uh, for uh, president against Abraham Lincoln. And the Democrats wait till the last minute to let the Civil War go as badly as it possibly can <laughs> for the North. No, really. I mean, and, his, and his platform is for peace. Let's negotiate peace. Now, so this is fall of 1864. And some of uh, people who might not be completely on top of their Civil War chronology, that's only six months before the war is over. Wow. Um, and they're still talking about let's, let's make peace with our Southern <laughs> brothers. Right? And, and, and so they had this, they postponed the convention as late as possible in order to harvest as much of this discontent as possible. They put this peace platform. They nominate George McClellan, who writes a letter kind of accepting the platform and kind of doesn't. Mm -hmm. And immediately, Sherman takes Atlanta. 
And so this claim that that Lincoln and Republicans have botched the Civil War and lost it or not, <laughs> you know, immediately. Uh, and so that, that there's a quote they said as they were traveling back home you know, from the convention in Chicago, they could see uh, themselves being burned in effigy <laughs> as they were coming back into town because people are celebrating you know, the fall of Atlanta. And they think that, you know, when, when Sherman's march, uh, the Civil War is going to come to an end. So I think that's the closest analogy I think of. Uh, it just happens to be in my the period that I study, but I think it, it's true. The disappearance of the Whig Party in the early 1850s, the emergence of the Republican Party thereafter, the nomination of George McClellan for well, a, a platform that just disappears. <laughs> I basically, so I, I asked you if you thought this was a historically remarkable election, and the two you compared it to were one where a political party collapsed and one during the Civil War. So I think maybe it is safe to say this is a historically remarkable election. We just don't know what the change is going to be yet because we have yet to see the results. Exactly. Uh, I tell people I don't want to hear them use the word antebellum before the war because we're always living in an antebellum period. We just don't know when the war is coming. Right. And, 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 that's, such a, that's such a bleak picture. Well, we're always before some war. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and we're not calculating our lives by a chronology we, that we don't know is coming. So I'm not a bleak guy. So let me give it this. You put your finger right on it, Adam, when you say you don't we don't know how this is going to turn out. This is either a Goldwater election of 1864 that leads to the Democrats coming into such power that they're able to create the Voting Rights Act. Right. 1964, <laughs> right? right? You said 18. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I, I tend to do that. Since <laughs> I'm, I, I tend to be a living in the 18th century, uh. 19th century more in my mind. Yeah, 1964. Or it's 1980 uh, in mm. which, you know, you find uh, out of uh, the Republicans are able to portray the preceding administration of Jimmy Carter in this case as a muddled mess and you need to seize it and, and have mourning again in America or make America great again. And then they seize power. So it's hard to see how it's not going to be an important election. Right. You know, I think the big question is whether or not uh, the Democrats, if they win, and at this moment here in August, it looks as if that's the way things are looking, um, that they're able to bring the Senate and the House along with them. And if they can, then you are looking at another sort of great society moment, I think, when uh, Johnson has, you know, Congress at his command and they're able to do things like the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. So um, or what you could have is an incredibly estranged electorate, just more of what we've had with a Democratic uh, president and Republican Congress in which people are even madder than they were before. (laughs) And so... Uh, it's hard to see that we're going to see Republican president and Republican Congress. Um, but even if that happens, when he has basically renounced that party, what's that going to mean? Right. So I think we're in for interesting times regardless of what happens. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, it's such a far cry from, uh, you know, a couple decades ago when everyone was saying, well, it doesn't you know, the presidents are so similar. You might as well vote for Ralph Nader. It's it's uh, it's such a different climate. Um, I did want to uh, get to get to this question that I remember when we were chatting on set, 
I was reading uh, at the time a you know a big heavy presidential biography. Uh, I won't say which one, so so I, I won't ask you to comment on a colleague. But um, I I was you know it's like you know the kind of the kind of uh, big old biography a dad yeah. gets for Christmas. And I said, oh, what do you think of this book? And you made a comment to the effect that oh well that sort of history is all well and good, but that uh, what we what you were really interested in as a historian was work that moved. Our understanding of history forward is is the way that you put it, I think. And I was really interested in that distinction because to me, I had always assumed uh, the study of history was like, well, we're just going to find out what happened. And then, you you know, you just read it. And it's uh, the work of a historian is just to tell us all, you know, tell those of us who don't know what happened in the past. And I never thought of it as a field it's in the past. How could it move forward? Um, and so I, I was wondering if you could expand on that idea. Well, thanks for giving me this opportunity, Adam. This is the one thing that makes me so angry I can hardly stand it. So I love I'll, it. <laughs> I always quote my mom, who was a fifth grade teacher, and I told her I was going to go to graduate school in history. And she said, well, what for, honey? We already know what happened. Um, <laughs> and it's very much like what you just said. Let's put it this way. If that's what my job was, I'd shoot myself. Uh, you, you know, just repeating the same things we already know. I mean, academic history is, like every other academic discipline, we live for discovery and hmm. for originality. Now, that is not, you know, the, the, the books that you're talking about are called uncle books. They're books that you buy for your uncle for, <laughs> for Christmas or <laughs> a birthday. And they're beautifully done. There's obviously a huge demand for them. People, They're often biographies. People want to know. So I'm not dismissing them. It's just if we settle for just repeating what we already know or or translating it into a story that's easily palatable, we don't actually perform our jobs as historians, which is to find what we don't know about the past. Hmm. Um, I'm an Americanist, you know, but by the standards of my profession, I do journalism. (laughs) You know, I'm Hmm. just a 19th century (laughs) person, right? People who do ancient history or medieval history or history of China and the, you know, 17th century. I mean, that's harder uh, in many ways, but they, that, but they don't get to be on Adam Ruins Everything. So uh. I, w- I wouldn't trade places with them. But there are things that we are still discovering about the ancient world, you know, centuries, millennia later. Uh, and it's not just because our predecessors were stupid or, you know, were blinded by their um, you know prejudices. It's that there's always new evidence coming about. So in our own time, Think what it means that if if people would think, okay, what is history? And think of it instead as the most popular hobby in the nation, Hmm. which is genealogy. Hmm. Okay, Think what Ancestry.com, and let the record show I have no uh, economic arrangement with them. No sponsorship. Uh, No, no. uh, I would welcome one if anybody from Ancestry is listening and would like to talk with me. But to think about what that means, that in the last decade, you're able to go online and see the evidentiary base of your family's history, you know, uh, that is a revolution. What mm-hmm. if we could do that for the whole nation? You know, I, I've spent a lot of my time and energy of the last 25 years of imagining history in digital form. I do have uh, something I'd like to plug here. Please do. People, people go online and look at American Panorama. It's a digital atlas of American history that we're making at the University of Richmond with a grant from the Mellon Foundation. And it imagines uh, history in an entirely new way. So related to what we were talking about just now, 
it shows the forced migration of African Americans uh, from 1820 to 1860 with a map that sort of areas that are losing black population are varying shades of blue and areas that are gaining are varying shades of red. It's kind of pulsating. You see that it's not like a big red arrow like in the textbook, you know, where it's moving from here to there or the Great Migration. Here's an arrow from Mississippi to Chicago. Well, it's not like that. It's like an fMRI of of our brains, you know, that's got all these nuclei and movement. And another map of the foreign-born population of the United States from 1850 to 2010, and it shows for every county in the United States in each of those years where its people came from, and you, you click on it, and it sends out tendrils around the world for where people came from, right? So it's got billions of pieces of evidence in it across all of American history. Literally, we are seeing things that we have never seen before, that our minds, our analog minds, wow. just cannot imagine that much. We, we can't picture simultaneity. Right. <laughs> the best we can do is, meanwhile... <laughs> or back on the ranch, right? We we can't really tell two stories at one time. So we have millions of pages of newspapers that we've never been able to read with electronic um, amplification before to go back and find the patterns across a hundred years of different ways that we've used language and stuff. So history is, it's getting, I believe, getting ready to undergo a great revolution in which we're able to see all kinds of things we could never see before. Wow, that's such a that's such an incredible vision. I mean, yeah, cuz we think of even yeah, the 19th century history as being like, oh, well, we probably know what happened cuz uh, you know, it's in books, it's in newspapers, but yep. um that's a way of like doing data analysis even on history yep. is something that yeah, wouldn't have been possible until recently. And I did I did go to the site after we uh talked on set actually, and yeah, it was really it was sort of like the Kind of like the graphic you would expect to see on one of those, you know, one of those fancy New York Times graphics about, a, you know, some piece of data mining they did, but on like historical movements of people. And it, yeah, I hadn't really had an appreciation for, you know, what the Great Migration meant until I saw that. Um, and so that's a way that that piece of information, it's not just, you're not just educating people about it, you're actually uh, adding new information to our understanding of that period that we literally didn't have before. And inviting everybody to, and this goes back to the theme of this conversation, to participate in understanding their own history, hmm. right? So if history is not just the, the, some people telling other people what to think about the past, but instead is enabling people to find themselves in the flow of time, you know, that's what we do. You know, what is history? It's how the heck we got here. Mm-hmm. What, what could be more useful than that? Really? <laughs> right. And, and I'm I'm so struck by what I love about backstory. Just to you know laud your your own work for a moment is that yeah uh, I love the way each of the guests on the show you know brings about a new perspective to a period that I thought I knew something about you know just through you know the history it sort of gives it this fractal quality where the more you look at it the more you uh, you know have to discover and learn. But, yeah, there's just so many, like, little micro-movements or, you know, justifications for events that we didn't understand or, uh, you know, small revolutions that we didn't really – that nobody appreciated until this moment. Uh, Yeah, just sort of continue to add context. Yeah, and there's been a revolution in history over the last 50 years in which – think about this – not only 
do women get to vote, they get to be in history. <laughs> and mm. not only are African Americans enfranchised, they are actually, I mean, think about the revolution that we're seeing and, you know, uh, you know, the big movie of the year, uh, Birth of a Nation, about Nat Turner's rebellion. Mm. It's, it's coming up, Sundance, right? Our vision of the past is becoming radically democratized. And it goes hand in hand with this impatience that you're talking about, uh, with people talking about the system being rigged, my voice can't be heard. People are now demanding a voice in America's history. And that's what, that's what makes Hamilton such a big hit, the fact that p- people of color are starring in our history. Right. Um, so even though I think of, I get up every day and think about the worst things in American history for a living, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm very optimistic because I can see that for the first time, a young person of any background will have access to seeing him or herself in the story of their nation. Right. You know, and how is that not the foundation for a better democracy going forward? Uh, if you don't think you have a stake in the nation— if you don't think that you have a part in the story, mm-hmm. if you don't think that people like you helped make the country that you live in, why should you care? Why <laughs> should you have any faith that it could ever be better? In this case, if we can make history more inclusive, and not just by adding you know, people of different skin tones in the illustrations for the textbook, but rather let's rethink history from the ground up to include <laughs> everybody, right. then what would the story look like? So that goes back to your original point about presidential biographies and things, right? Well, if, if your main point of history is to include everybody in the story, we're going to have to find new ways of telling the story. Now, those maps I showed you are great, but they're not a story. Now, that's what's great about backstory, and thanks for the plug. I, I would say <laughs> this. We, we, our, our last episode about women voting I I listened to it in the car with my wife on a recent trip, and I I came to the end. I said, I have to admit, I didn't know any of that until we made the show. (laughs) There is so much to be discovered every week. And I find that exciting and liberating. So the thing is that history is as exciting as science. We just need to start telling that story in a way that's about discovery rather than passing on civics lessons. And that's the reason I love being on your show. You kind of got to blow up the old story before there's space for the new story. And so that's why, you know, a a skeptical attitude is good, not because it makes you, you know, give up, because it makes you demand more of our nation's history. And there's a lot more there than we've ever tapped. Oh, man. Well, I think that's a wonderful place to end it. Thank you so much for saying so. And and I do want to say that that is the goal of the show is to to unearth uh, things that we didn't know about ourselves and tell those stories that haven't been told. Um, And I think that's why, you know, even when we and that's why I love talking to you about these topics, because there's so much of our own history that we think we know, but we don't actually hold the truth in our heads while we talk about it. You know, we we talk about what the founding fathers wanted, but we don't have that thought of what they were really like, you know, as we're doing that. Um, having that context uh, makes our understanding of the present so much richer. Oh, whatever. You just said everything that I'm trying to say well, so much but, more eloquently. Well, well, let me say it this way. I noticed that you in your TV show, and congratulations on the new season coming up, by Thank the you way. Thank very much. Uh, the same way that we tend to end backstory, which is like, wow, wasn't that discouraging? But on the <laughs> other hand, just because you discovered all this stuff that you didn't know, 
it doesn't mean you give up. It just means you reframe the story. Right. That you, you reframe your actions. So that's the thing. If you don't know where the dangers lie, <laughs> you can't you can't lay out a safer course, right? Right. If you don't know what the problems are, you can't solve them. So I think that's what history and Adam Rins everything have in common. I think you're absolutely right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Ed. It's really wonderful my, to talk to you as always. My pleasure, Adam. Good luck with your new season. And that is it for Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. Thanks again to Ed for coming on the show. We will be back in two weeks, so please tune in then. Our producer is Shara Morris, and the show is produced by Maximum Fun, which is a great podcast organization. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment whenever you subscribe. And once again, Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show, is coming back at you August 23rd. You can find clips and full episodes at TrueTV.com slash Adam Ruins Everything, and then watch True TV app. And once again, please go to my website, AdamConover.net, not .org, not .tv, .net to see my tour dates where I don't need to be so specific with you guys about the URL. You're smart people. You understand. You can Google it and you'll find it. Uh, but on that site, you will find a list of tour dates, uh, w- cities that I'm going to in September and October all across the country. I hope you'll come out and see me. Give me a hug and say hi. Until two weeks from now, see you later. Bye-bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.